Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? For those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. My show is all about celebrating, celebrating life, celebrating arts, celebrating everything that we can uh, look to find to celebrate in this crazy world that we're living in. I want to take you back for a moment. Uh, 1973, I was 12 years old, and this book came out. Uh, by Norman Mailer. And I was obsessed with this book. I think my dad was proud because of some of the photographs in the book that I just found her to be the most beautiful woman on the planet. And even as a small child, I knew that there was something special about her. And even though I was a small child when she passed away, that love and that excitement of seeing her on the screen, and I've had the good fortune of seeing her uh, thanks to living in New York and revival houses, I've had the good fortune of seeing her as she was meant to be seen on the big screen. I am also celebrating another gentleman. Uh, now that was then, this is now. This is his third time on the show. This is the book that brought us together. Richard Barrios screened out. And then he came back to talk about West Side Story. And I am fortunate that he is here today to talk about Marilyn Monroe. First of all, Richard, it is so great to have you back on the show. How have you been since we last saw each other? Thank you, Richard. It is always this incredible pleasure to speak to you. Uh, Partly because you're an extremely positive person, and partly you ask really, really good questions, and I now you're really appreciate that. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm I'm good. I am dealing pretty well with the heat, I think, as I hope many of us are who are watching, and um, very uh, excited to speak with you about uh, on Maryland. Um, I. Had a lot of fun writing it. It was a very rewarding experience. Well, I am telling you, it, you know, and this is very interesting because I've been really researching the reviews that you've gotten for the book. And congratulations, mm -hmm. you've received some amazing reviews on the book. And the one thing that everyone is pointing out uh, is uh, that uh, on uh, the shelves, and I don't even know how many books there are about Mar Maryland, this is going to rise to the very top of that list and i um it's a long list too it's about a thousand it's uh, you know and yeah. i want to say that what i love so much about this book uh is and those who watch my show on a regular basis know this about me i say that i'm always about celebrating artists and their bodies of worth um when most people uh encounter someone for the first time uh, the first question that most people ask is what do you do and they always just talk about their jobs because that is what describes them. But I think it's more than that. And it's all about uh, a person's body of worth. And I, you talk a little bit about this in your introduction and uh, in the acknowledgments. But if you can take us back, why this book and why now? The technical part of it first was that my... Uh, esteemed publisher, Oxford University Press, um, had begun before the pandemic a, a series of books called An Opinionated Guide, and where one person's work or legacy 
such as it may be, is taken and examined. And uh, my uh, colleague and uh, friend Ethan Morden had done a couple of them early on. He had done one on Barbara Streisand and one on uh, Mr. Sondheim. And then when the pandemic came in, it sort of fell apart. And then one day I heard from my wonderful editor at Oxford, uh, Norm Hershey, asking me, uh, well, he said, We're, we, we want to revive this series. Would you be interested? And I'm like, duh, of course I am. I love working with Oxford. And he asked me, who might I be interested in working uh, on? And of course, part of me wanted to say somebody more obscure, but I did send him a list of 10 uh, uh, performers who I thought would be especially uh, interested, interesting to work on. And he immediately selected out of that list, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, in, now, how many names were on the list? There were 10 names? I think there were 10. I think they were 10. Which gives uh, us hope that there are nine more books in this series for you. Uh, I <laughs> that That is between Oxford and the fates, I well, suppose. Well, I know they're watching. I know they're watching. So, uh, uh, oh, there's, there's, they've been so wonderful to me, I got to tell you. Well, they've um, been wonderful to me, I will say this. Uh, they have shared uh, this show today. Uh, they uh, follow me on social media platforms, and they are hands-on, which is something that you don't always get with a book publishing company. Trust me, I've got shelves oh. to prove it. Um, I have scars to prove it, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, and um, well, anyway, he immediately went to Marilyn Monroe, who is, of course, as you already alluded, the most, possibly the most represented actor in history. Uh, the only one I think who would probably come close to her is Chaplin. And that's, and of course, a whole different realm. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Mr. Chaplin hasn't, to my knowledge, had a whole lot of uh, fiction written about him and not too much sensational. And of course, Ms. Monroe has a lot of both. But I was so happy because I've always... Uh, I've always liked her. I've always, in fact, loved her. And the, having the opportunity to do what this book is, a book about the work, about the legacy, and about the processes that brought those into being. And you get to stay away almost entirely from, you know, happy birthday, Mr. President, and how did she die, and all that stuff and all the conspiracy theories and, shall I say, nonsense that's right, been written right. in so many books. And I got to zero in on the provable, tangible, actual uh, uh, legacy that she has uh, left us with. And so it was so much fun doing it from that. And of course, her personal life has to factor into the book because it factors in to how she created her performances uh, for good and sometimes for not so good. Um, but it all connected with 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 the work and with what we left, what what she left us with. I mean, yes, she left us with an image and a mystique and uh, an iconography and all that. 
but first and foremost, there are the films, uh, and then a little bit less the recordings and, you know, a, a, a few ancillary things. But as you said, she was one of the hardest working performers mm -hmm. uh, of her time. And that's never been stressed uh, to, a, to a great extent. And I wanted to make sure that was a central part of the book. I don't normally uh, underline things in your books uh, because I don't want to mark them up. Uh, but I did in this book uh, because I under one sentence jumped out at me and I said, this is something which will be a great starting point for us today. And the, the question is, was her art her life or was her life her art? And I love what your answer was to that. My answer was Remember? yes. 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 And and then I love the fact that your book begins with a chronology of her life from 1926 to 1962. And it's almost month by month, we see the choices that she was making in her career. And she was very much hands-on in her image. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of movies that, that have been made about her and everything, but there was a, a television movie uh, that was made that there was a moment where she was, whether this happened or not, I don't know, where she's walking through the park uh, with uh, Susan Strasberg. You know which scene I'm talking about? Yeah. Tell us about it. Um, and it was during her time in New York and where she had somewhat physically let herself go. She didn't bleach her hair every week and all the things she did in California to, you know, to keep that, that appearance and that image. And she uh, said to her companion, uh, would you like to see Marilyn? And, you know, the companion kind of sort of looked at her and said, oh, oh, okay, sure. And all of a sudden, with just a couple of little adjustments and a change of posture and couple of things, she changed herself into Marilyn Monroe. And immediate, and no one was looking at her before in, in, in this open air public setting. And all of a sudden, everyone saw it and flocked to her and every, because all she had made herself known in a way that she had not before. And she was in some ways able to turn that on and off. She had that much control, but she had worked with that for a long, long time. And uh, yeah, she was very photogenic at the start, but she worked at how the camera would photograph her. She worked a whole lot on her posture and body, body language. And all these things that went into making her, I mean, yes, she was instinctively and intrinsically, you know, a, a, a gifted and extraordinary uh, uh, performer, but she also put a hell of a lot of work into it. And that scene kind of showed both of those things, the instinct and the craft at one time. Well, you know, learning so much about her life at the very beginning, um, I was surprised to hear that she did stage work as well. 
uh, that was something that I learned in your book that I don't think I've read in any other books up to after now. Uh, perhaps it's there, but I it nothing jumped out the way it did in this book. And in terms of knowing how to go after the right people that were going to help her on her journey, she truly wanted to be, and I am of the opinion that she was a great actress. Uh, there's no way that could, uh, anyone could have gotten away with some of the lines, including Carol Channing, the way that she did in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, for example. Uh, those Absolutely. lines, as silly and as crazy as they are, in the wrong hands, uh, it's going to be a completely different type of a film. Uh, and as I went back and started looking at her films as I'm reading your book, uh, again, everyone get this book. It's incredible. Uh, I am really looking at the fact that she reached out to the greatest acting teachers, the greatest opportunities that she could to further her career, to make her a great actress. As that was going on, unfortunately, the the powers that be, and it's still the same way, everyone, are making the decisions on how she will be presented. And they're not giving her the chances that she really wanted to go after. Right. Uh, to the first part of that, she was an extraordinary networker. She, uh, and she reached out whenever she could. And she was very ambitious. She was not just this very pretty little person who just things happen to. No, no. And as sensitive as she was, there was also of necessity, a calculating side of her that knew uh, and could go after opportunities if she saw them. And insofar as it was in her power to, to win them. And of course, you know, as I talk about, there were roles that she really wanted and would have been good in that uh, she wasn't considered for. Um, I think of Miss Adelaide in Guys and Dolls, yes. Talk about putting a new spin on a role. And not only was did Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who directed it, uh, uh, not, not seriously consider her, but when he spoke to her, he, he, he insulted her, uh, which is unthinkable, but that said a lot about how she was being treated. But there was a lot um, I mean, that was going on by so many people. The studio system. I love early on, also in your book. I uh, and this is uh, in the chronology when she, uh, like every other uh, young actor or actress trying to etch out a career, she made the rounds. She went uh, got her name listed uh, with all of the modeling agencies. She did whatever she would show up. I love. Uh, the fact that she even was a caddy at one point and that celebrity golf tournament. Yes. Well, and, and, she, and she, and she used it to her advantage. She, she connected with people that way. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but I love that moment, uh, which, and uh, I don't want to give away spoilers. There's so many great things. I don't talk about the book, but there's a great moment early on when uh, uh, this was after 20th century Fox, she had a contract and nothing was happening. So one day she gets the bright idea. You know where I'm going? Oh, yeah. Oh, Take yeah. it away. Oh. Take it away, Richard. Um, she had she was under contract to 20th Century Fox and had been given one role 
and had been a, a presenter at the Oscars, uh, but nothing else was really happening. And she was starting to get restless and wondering if there was gonna be, you know, what was the next act gonna be? So she herself engineered uh, a way to get some attention. Uh, she had, as she often did, a photo shoot at the 20th Century Fox uh, photo studio. And she went to Wardrobe, which was some distance at Fox away from uh, the, 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 the studio, the photo studio, and changed into a, a, a what might pass uh, for a negligee, but was probably a lot skimpier. Mm -hmm. And she uh, took her shoes off and tousled her hair a bit and looked devastating and walked barefoot several blocks from there to the photo studio. Uh, basically, everything at Fox stopped dead in its tracks and people were hanging out of windows and stopped in their cars. And she created nearly a riot. And it was after that, and then one sh uh, small appearance at a, a banquet, uh, a well, luncheon, that forward, she showed I up two hours late for. And uh, she knew how to get attention. And that resulted in her next two film roles, which were given to her bang, bang, almost on the spot. Mm -hmm. And, but I, I love the fact that as all these people are asking her, what's your next film role? Well, that's something you'll have to Mr. ask Mr. Zanuck. And I'm yeah. sure that that was happening. When is she going to be on the screen? But then she starts getting these roles. Yep. But, you know, right and, now. And she gets a bunch of them. Bang, 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 bang. And, you know, people wonder now if they see some of these movies, why she's in these small, small parts. And there's this terrible comedy uh, that she's in with one of my favorite stars, Claudette Colbert, but it's a terrible comedy. It's called Let's Make It Legal. And Monroe is in it for maybe five minutes, but they just had to hurry up and put her into things because she had engineered. And the other thing that was getting a lot of attention were all those um, photos she was taking. Not all of them were pinups, but some of them were. And that was generating an enormous amount of attention. And so Fox had to hurry up and, you know, find these roles and make them a little bit larger and give her much larger billing on the screen than her on-screen time uh, would have otherwise, you know, caused. But she was getting all this attention. And so they had to hurry up and at one point, what is it, five films in six months, something mm -hmm. like that? And um, even then in the studio system, that was a whole lot. But, you know, and then later, of course, she, she knew that they were overworking her, and that was part of what caused her rebellion against Fox, which came a, a bit later when she was very famous. Well, the flip side... That and, them, and that and them paying her a ridiculously low salary. Bingo, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah. Uh, right now, SAG-AFTRA may be going on strike any second. And any second. It's, a whole, it's a whole different world out there now in terms yep. of how actors are truly, in my opinion, being exploited 
especially with all the streaming services and everything now. This mm -hmm. is uncharted territory. But here she was, even after putting her handprints uh, in Grauman's Chinese uh, theater uh, forefront uh, at the forecourt and everything, she's still one of the most highly sought after actresses at that time. And one of the most underpaid actresses at that time. And, and it could be argued that she was the most famous woman in the world. In early night, in uh, the in, the uh, uh, incident that I that is so well captured on the cover of my book, I, I will I will hold it up. Her performing uh, for the troops in Korea, mm -hmm. and that was apparently the the most photographed uh, thing that had happened on the planet up to that time, I've read. Uh, but you see what Fox is paying her. And it was, and then she was having to pay like her drama coach and all that out of this and several other retainers, I think as well. And it, it was absurd. It was absurd. And then giving her things like River of No Return which were not suitable for her. And well, the songs uh, are great. It's like two, two movies that her, her, her musical numbers are great. And then there's the rest of this movie, you know, which is sort of also a bit like uh, the other one that she didn't like. There's no business like show business uh, where the musical numbers are, you know, make a big impression. And then otherwise they just kind of throw her away. They don't give mm -hmm. her very much to do. But um, but anyway, all this, you know, she had enough sense of her worth by that point that she knew that this was not enough and that she needed to do something about it. And it sort of echoes the rebellion that someone else had had a couple of decades earlier when Betty Davis uh, abandoned Warner Brothers because she hated what she was being given and she uh, left the country and went to England and there was a, a, tr a court case and all that. Monroe only went as far as New York, but Fox was very eager for her to come back. And that was when she uh, uh, studied uh, with Lee Strasberg and at the Actors Studio and kind of reinvented herself uh, personally and professionally uh, in a number of ways. You know, it's very interesting getting back to Betty Davis for a moment. And I did not know this until recently, uh, believe it or not, uh, that every time she got suspended for not wanting to do a certain film, they would tack that suspension time onto her contract. So everybody, everybody. And shall we say who was the one who 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 got, who got rid of that with her court case was the wonderful Olivia de Havilland. Olivia de Havilland. Yes. And she sued and actors are still in her debt for what she did, uh, that it was considered peonage that someone under contract to a studio could be uh, held on beyond the length of the contract because they were suspended and the suspension time would be added on. And if you were given bad stuff and didn't want to do it, you could be there, you know, the rest of your life in limbo. 
which is I which saw is a great awesome interview thing. last week with Ron Howard, and mm-hmm. he was uh, he directed Betty Davis in one of her later films, and he mm-hmm. said that they were sitting down and they were talking one day, and he said to her, "How wonderful it must have been to have been." Uh, at that time in Hollywood. And she said it was the most oppressive time. Uh, You know, they were all servants to, you know, the powers that be at the head of the studios. And Marilyn was constantly fighting uh, for her piece of the pie. And she was making millions of dollars for the studio. And it was, was and she was aware of the discrepancy being, you know, vast. And then as I wrote in the book, one of the moments that really got her to wake up and smell the coffee came when there was a role she really wanted badly. Uh, And I don't know if she would have been well suited to it, but it was in a historical epic called The Egyptian. And the the Babylonian temptress uh, uh, was a role she really wanted and uh, went after and offered to test and everything else. But the thing was, Daryl Zanuck, who still at that point ran 20th Century Fox, had already earmarked the role for uh, someone who was not only under contract to the studio, but who he was uh, very personally involved with. And who ultimately in the finished movie did not do a terribly sterling job with this role. Mm-hmm. But that really helped Monroe to see what she was up against. And I want to talk about something that everyone's familiar with. Uh, They may Mm -hmm. not be familiar with all the facts around it, uh, but when she did the famous pinup calendar and how at that time, this was just not done by a Broadway, I mean, by a Hollywood actress. Uh, Mm -hmm. So rather than running from it, she ran towards it. And she owned it and she made it her own. If you can talk about that. She was advised to deny that it was her. And uh, against all, as you said, all advice, she said, no, it was me. I needed the money. And the uh, other part of it is, I don't know if I included this in the book, uh, but she was uh, very closely associated with the powerful agent, Johnny Hyde at that point. And it was a personal and professional association. And she could have borrowed the money. It was supposed either for rent or a car payment. Uh, And she could have borrowed the money from him. But he was in Monaco for Rita Hayworth's marriage to Prince Ali Khan. So he wasn't there. And Marilyn, so and this photographer that she knew offered her $50. And that's all she was paid for this. And um, and it was a little while later that it became this sensation. And if you've ever seen the calendar, you know why it's a sensation. Uh, but uh, and then there started being you can't totally see her face in it to know yay or nay, but you could certainly uh, suspect that it was her. And she was told, uh, don't don't just don't say anything. And her attitude was why shouldn't i why shouldn't i claim it was me own it own it and and she did and if anything it made her stock rise that much more uh richard i mentioned earlier 
uh, I've always been a, a huge fan of hers my entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you as big a fan uh, prior to starting work on this book as you are now? Yeah, I was. Um, I got her pretty early on. And I mean, when I was a kid seeing uh, uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes on NBC Saturday Night at the Movies. Mm-hmm. And um, because... And, and and I'm glad I got the chance to write about that in the book uh, was her rise really, she was very lucky in that in, it, it kind of coincided with movies going, not only going to television, but when NBC started Saturday Night at the Movies, these were recent films and given a very high profile network showing. And it was her, since most of the movies for that show's first two seasons were Fox. Uh, she was the one most uh, sensationally spotlighted that way. So it really brought her into, you know, obviously this is many, many years before home video or, you know, mm-hmm. let alone streaming or anything I like that. those days. <laughs> yes. and, she, mm, and she was, and they led off. In fact, and she was still alive at this time with How to Marry a Millionaire, which had been one of her biggest hits. And so uh, so I got I got to see her early and often when I was a child. And um, uh, not long after she died, uh, Fox, uh, her studio, issued an LP of her movie songs. And I found it. in a, a, a cutout bin at the local uh, dime store. There were dime stores then in those days and uh, loved her singing. And my mother would kind of mock me by imitating her doing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, but nevertheless, I loved it. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I knew immediately how special she was. And then when I saw Some Like It Hot, on the ABC Sunday night movie, you know, that I was blown away. And uh, and where I was living, which was outside New Orleans, uh, the TV stations there were very good about keeping her movies in rotation. So, uh, so I got to see them uh, early and often. And I, ne- I realized I never grew tired of seeing her. Uh, there was always something new to discover in her performances. And then as you so wisely noted at the beginning, when you get to see her on a big screen, oh brother, mm. you know, the the impact, which Billy Wilder, her her best director, uh, called flesh impact. Exactly. And she, you know, she burns holes in the screen. And um so um I was always able to understand why it went on and on and on. And then, of course, a few years after that, Kate started, you know, the rumors started being more substantiated. The book you showed, Mr. Mailer's uh, book, uh, was the first above ground uh, book to uh, uh, talk about her relationship with President Kennedy, for example, Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And, you know, ultimately, a lot of that sort of took over 
And it wasn't only about the movies and the fact that she had died tragically and young. And it became, you know, a lot about the intersection of uh, culture and politics and all, you know, all these things. Um, but then that fueled my uh, uh, determination to really make it about her work, which was the thing that really got her off the ground and, would, and the thing which has lasted, I think, the most. And so I was very, very glad I was able to do that. And um, uh, I think it's just this week or last week, uh, the book is being released in, in the UK. And I have to say British audiences have always been very, very kind to my, my work. And as you may have seen uh, last week in the uh, very well-regarded uh, London newspaper, The Daily Telegraph, uh, I got a review that kind of made me cry because it was a five star, five stars out of five stars review. And, uh, it and they don't they don't only like it, but they understand what I'm doing and how I'm working to reclaim the artist from the sensation. And I absolutely love that. Uh, I, what was your, uh, I know that your goal was to celebrate her work uh, as opposed to all the tabloidism. So thank you for that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, because you know, that's what I'm very interested in. Uh, but uh, what was the starting point for you when you sat down to begin writing this book? Where did it begin for you? Um, I started Googling, <laughs> of all things, because I was unaware of how many really fascinating uh, documents and papers pertaining to her life. It's like anything that she ever came near in her 36 years, you know, here on the planet uh, uh, is considered so magical that it gets reproduced or whatever. And there have been several websites with original documents. Uh, and in some cases that the dates on these documents really uh, cause us to have to revise some of our thoughts about what her chronology was. And that's why it was so important for me to uh, put that timeline in that you mentioned. And that was really the part of the book that I worked on the most, uh, especially about some, a lot of documents that have serviced about her very early years at 20th Century Fox, when she was under contract there the first time for a year when, you know, and uh, the way things progressed. And that gave me the handle to uh, kind of show that, yeah, we all know Marilyn Monroe, but there are things that we have misconceptions about. Not, not necessarily about her personal life, but even her professional life. There's more there than we understand. And no, for me, that was also a, a good corrective for you know the, the the sainthood and the victimization and blonde and you know all that kind of stuff. Was there a particular aha moment for you writing the book? Uh, something that you learned about her that you never uh, knew before or that you never really thought about? Yeah, 
Um, I had always heard about her first screen test uh, and that it supposedly happened on the set of, what was it, Mother Wore Tights and all this kind of stuff. And then I found the documents uh, from uh, Ben Lyon, who was then who former actor who was the casting director at Fox. And there were apparently two tests and one uh, one was going to be silent to show how she looked and the other one was to show how she handled dialogue and i saw an actor's name that i had never seen before and never heard of and his name was robert cornell and he was a contract actor a lowly contract actor as she became at 20th century fox and he did a test with her and we've never seen the test but there are the papers proving that the test happened and I went, oh, wow, we, we never knew about this. And again, it shows you that there was, it wasn't just Venus rising from the sea. There was work and engineering that caused these things to happen. And then the other kind of aha thing was the, um, the uh, performance she did at Fox. Uh, it was a kind of a talent show that they did, and this was after she left Fox, but she went back and she did it. And there are photographs, I even have a, a reproduction of the ticket for it, that it was like some of the contract actors and some of the other studio employees did this variety show and she did a song and dance in it that was very well received. And there are pictures of her doing it. And so it's all this, all these add-on moments that give the, uh, legend a little, you know, a little bit of a corrective, I think, and show that, you know, it shows how hard she worked for one thing. And, and that was the thing for me that was the most important to stress. The other aspect is, I mean, not only do I consider her to be a great actress, but I also consider her to be a great singer. And you mentioned in the book that even after Gentlemen Prefer Blondes opened, Zanuck even had to put out a statement that this was really notarized. Yes, <laughs> that that it was really her doing the singing. Of course, the funny part is there's one moment in that movie that she does not sing, and that's when she's doing the opera. No, 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 no. no, no. Yeah, and that's you have much better falsetto than I do. <laughs> um, and that's and that's someone else. But otherwise, and she worked really hard on her singing and she had just as she had acting mentors she had singing mentors too at uh, when she was at columbia and she made that uh musical uh, ladies of the chorus uh uh she had the musical director there uh that worked very closely with her and they ended up you know, she wanted to marry him in fact and he ended up turning her down but but married jane wyman twice so there you are. Yeah. Uh, and then she uh, worked with another one called uh, another gentleman called Phil Moore, who had also worked with uh, Lena Horne, I believe, and Dorothy Dandridge. And then at Fox, she worked very closely with a uh, coach named Hal Schaefer. And he coached her for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and River of No Return. And there's no business like show business. And you can really hear uh the techniques he gave her to work with. 
And once again, there was also a personal association there that was sort of noteworthy um, because he attempted suicide over her. You know, um, and then later on, uh, you know, she did later on, she did Some Like It Hot and Let's Make Love and worked as hard on the music for those as she did for, you know, anything else. Well, as you're beginning to learn more and more about her, uh, one of the things that you even mentioned this at the beginning of the book uh, is uh, she was shaped by the people uh, that came into her life. And I always, when I'm interviewing a lot of uh, artists, I always ask if they were ambitious in terms of the choices that they made, or if they feel that these choices were pretty much made for them by the associates, the people they met along the way. And there was a little bit of both happening with her. Uh, Yes, uh, if you can talk, and you do go uh, into great depth uh, about this uh, early on in the book, uh, about the people who shaped her for better or for worse. Well, certainly her first really major uh, dramatic uh, influence was the coach she met, I think her second day at Columbia Pictures, and who ended up working with her uh, through the first half of her career through uh, Seven Year Itch. And she was an an actress and coach named Natasha Lytes. And uh, Monroe learned a great deal from her. And as I wrote in the book, and I was ever more conscious of when I was watching the early films, Monroe also acquired, uh, acquired what could be viewed as a bad habit from her, uh, the overstressing of syllables. And you see it from the time of the asphalt jungle, and you, you see it uh, certainly through River of No Return, where she overemphasizes her consonants. And it has a very kind of stilted sound to it. And the fact was her very first uh, uh, class uh, meeting with Natasha Lytes, the woman had told her diction, diction, diction. And she was very, very helpful with uh, uh, teaching Monroe about theater and theater history and help guiding her to uh, uh, to analyze characters and create backstories. So she was very, very, very helpful with that. But there was also that thing. And it's why some people still uh, hold some of Monroe's acting to be amateurish is the overstressing of the, of the consonants. And fortunately that went away later on. Well, also so that was, that was her first big uh, influence. And Monroe was pretty revolutionary in demanding even before she was a star that Lytes be kept on the set when she was acting positioned right next to the camera. And if she didn't like the job Monroe was doing, she would uh, shake her head and Monroe would, would ask that the scene be shot over. And I, as I wrote in the book, uh, her big breakthrough movie, The Asphalt Jungle, she's finishing her first scene and she's walking off camera. But before she does, you actually see her looking 
toward the camera, toward Natasha Lytes to see if she'd done a good enough job. Yeah, it's funny. Anytime I sit down and talk to you, it's almost like uh, you're we're reading each other's minds because I, I wanted to mention that as well, that having uh, Natasha on the set, uh, I don't even know how so early on in her career that she was able to get that. I mean, do you feel that a, a lot of it was a security blanket for her, let's face it, um, mm. but the fact that she was allowed to be there and the fact that, you know, were the directors really in on the fact that she was seeking her approval other than the directors? Yeah, and some of them really resented it. That was why a couple of times uh, Otto Preminger was one. There were several others. They would they would try to get Natasha banned from the set, and um, and Marilyn would go to the higher ups and demand that she be reinstated, and she always was. And uh, later, something similar happened with her second on the set acting mentor, uh, Paula Strasberg, mm -hmm. uh, who was resented by a lot of people even more than Natasha Lytes was, which is saying something. Uh, but Marilyn felt that she had to have these presences there to bolster her work. And then as far as her, even when she was er early, when she wasn't a superstar, um, having the power, it was generally felt that her friendship with one of the heads of 20th Century Fox, uh, Joseph Skink, who was a movie pioneer, and he and Marilyn had become close friends. There's speculation about the entire nature of that relationship, but they were close. And um, uh, it was always felt that uh, she could lean on him a little bit for certain things. Um, uh, I read an interview with MacDonald Carey, who's in that bad comedy with her, uh, Let's Make It Legal. And he commented and he said, he would look at her and he said, yeah, she has a little bit power going for her. And uh, David Wayne, who was in more movies with her than anybody else, felt the same, the same way. Uh, but a lot of it also just came from this desperate insecurity she had. Uh, and again, David Wayne talked about he just he does this long scene with her on an airplane in How to Marry a Millionaire, which is marvelous. One of the greatest scenes in any movie, you know. It's 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 wonderful. And uh, but he he talked about and she she can't act with her body because she's seated in a plane. So she has her face and her hands and her glasses. Uh, and uh, he said it was a nightmare getting to do that because, and a lot of it came from her insecurity. And the fact of the matter was she did not always know how marvelous she really was. Well, and then later- Interesting, Judy Garland, yeah. uh, Liza said in an interview that Judy never got her talent. Yeah. Never got it. Never, never. And. Um, and then what happened with Marilyn, and I go into this somewhat in the book, she moved to New York and starts studying seriously with Strasberg and uh, auditing classes at the Actors Studio and all that. And a lot of those 
people in that circle uh, were constantly telling her, oh, your work has, you know, what you've been doing has not been worthy of you. And that's when they start talking about her being Lady Macbeth and, mm -hmm. you know, all this other stuff. And so she came more and more to undervalue what she had done up to that time. And let me tell you, you see her in the seven-year itch and you say, nobody could have touched what she does in that movie. Mm -hmm. It is it is for what it is, it's perfect. But she never thought, because by that point, she thought to be a great actor was to be a great serious actor. And she underestimated uh, by a long shot uh, how skilled she was as a comedian. Well, that's still, I think, the, you know, the underlying factor in Hollywood. You know, uh, comedies don't necessarily get nominated for Oscars or everything. And Not much. It, you know, it's very interesting. Um, I want to talk, uh, and again, you beat me to the punch, uh, the, uh, what I call the part two of her career. And that mm -hmm. was uh, after coming to New York, studying with Strasbourg, um, and really finding a confidence in herself. And that confidence was very much there until, again, she gets back to Hollywood and the powers that be, the people around her, are tearing her down at every turn in the road. Uh, but if you can talk about what you notice personally, in your opinion, uh, the shift uh, from uh, after New York and coming back to Hollywood and her approach to uh, doing filmmaking. The confidence was there, but it was also sort of this really, really gorgeous facade because underneath, and um, you know, she still had the insecurities. She was practically born with them and had them all her life. That was part of it. A lot of it was still having to fight and working with Laurence Olivier uh, severely uh, was, was such a great disappointment for her because he and she had totally different uh, approaches to acting and to everything pretty much and it did not gel well as that movie was being produced the prince and the showgirl and yet um, she comes across better than he does in the film as he admitted yes as he admitted she's she is by far the best thing about that movie uh, the other thing and i allude to this uh and a number of people in her life alluded to this uh when she went to new york and started in very intense psychoanalysis. And that can be a sword that cuts both ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it, I think a lot of times she got in met, and then she brought it, of course, into her characters and in her roles. And I don't think it was always consistently a helpful thing for her uh, professionally. And what while it gave her uh roles more psychological understanding and depth certainly uh some like it hot um um i think personally it was it it, it undermined uh, a lot of times um her what what her achievements were undermined by 
by by the ongoing insecurity and the need to overthink everything and it kind of just sent her into a tailspin on a number of occasions uh in our remaining minutes and this hour has flown i cannot believe that uh, we just have a few minutes left that's because you're so easy to talk to my god (laughs) no this is just amazing i could go on for hours on this book uh but looking back now look revisiting these films now and -hmm. you're looking at them through a different lens uh which performances really jump out you the most now and why? Um, I have an easy answer because it's a tiny role, but my God, what she does with it. And it's in a five part movie called O. Henry's Full House. And she gets to do a scene with one of the greatest actors in the history of everything, Charles Lawton. And he um, he thinks she's an innocent girl and goes to proposition her and finds out she's a hooker. And the interaction and then the levels that she goes through and the changes of, um, of, of voice and, and demeanor and everything in just a little over a minute. And it's sort of a compendium uh, in a very short time of what she could do. And I think it's just extraordinary. And then on a bigger canvas, uh, the one you named, I think, because I had never liked the movie because I always thought it was dull. And then I watched it more and just watched her as opposed to the movie around her, The Prince and the Showgirl. And she is just absolutely marvelous in it. And you, you're you're almost ungrateful to the movie because you want it to be close to as good as she is, and it's not. But she is just wonderful in it, and that I that I I think they're like the three crowning gems in the tiara that she can't get around her neck. Um, mm. That I uh, I would say the seven year rich and Prince and the Showgirl and Some Like It Hot are for me the three that show most completely who she was and what she could do. And those, those would be my go-tos. And then take a, take a minute and watch her, her bit in O. Henry's Full House. I, I, I have to go back and look at that. Um, I also ask uh, a lot of authors, when did you know that this book was ready for us? Uh, was it your decision? Was it the publisher's decision? Was it your editor's decision? Um, well, they give you a deadline, which is, you know, a little flexible. Um, so that helps somewhat um, to give you a time frame. And I'm pretty good about working within deadlines. But uh, there's a point when, once I've gone through maybe five drafts and there's a point where I feel I this is as I've taken this as far as I can. It says what I want it to say. And I'm I'm willing to let it out of my house. Um, and then what's funny is um, I did, I recorded the audio book for this as well. And that was quite an experience. But going back and reading your work aloud in a very concentrated, you know, space of time, uh, you start thinking, oh, I should have said that. But so you, it's easy to second guess yourself, especially when you're reading it aloud. Mm-hmm. But it's out there and I'm not unhappy that my name is on it. 
And I was very happy to dedicate it to my dear late friend, Joe Gallagher. Uh, and I think he's up on his cloud enjoying it too. So I'm very glad about that. Right next to Norma Jean. Absolutely. And I hope she's, I hope she feels good about it too, because. Um, How many books is this now for you? Six. This is your sixth book. Well, congratulations. And, and, and seven is on, seven is starting to percolate on the burner. There's, there's been some inroads with my friends at Oxford about it. So uh, I will announce when, when, when it's a done deal. <laughs> and you'll come back. Oh gosh. Yes. yes. Oh, but, uh, how did I not? So how has this book shaped you? Um, I, I love writing. I, I love having that space, that time to be able to do that. And I think I'm pretty good at it. And so it, 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 and also when I told people I was doing this, it was like when I wrote about West Side Story, seeing the people that that movie meant something to, seeing what Marilyn Monroe meant to people. And they were so thrilled that I was writing. And that's very empowering. You, you don't just feel like the tree falling in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, you know. What does she mean to you? God, it's, so, it's sort of like the Wizard of Oz where it's been so intrinsic a part of my life personally and professionally for so long that it's just that she means more to me than a lot of the, you know, more personal externals and all that, because I've been, you know, over six decades, God, I've had the opportunity to internalize her. And I'm very, very glad she's there. I am too. And, 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 and I will add, just add that one of my biggest disappointments in life was going to Niagara Falls and not being able to drop a suggestion in the slot at the bell tower. <laughs> oh my God. Well, you know, my husband is from Niagara Falls. So the first time I, and the first time I went there was, you know, uh, because of him and, uh, uh -huh. and her presence is everywhere. Uh, oh gosh. Oh yes, definitely. Definitely. Yes. Um, and I love that movie, by the way. I, oh, I do too. adore I do too. her in that. Yes. Well, and, uh, again, the book is on Marilyn Monroe, An Opinionated Guide. But in my opinion, it's the best of the, the books. Uh, I just, uh, you capture her and her body of worth, which, as I've said before, is very important to me. Uh, because when it comes to artists, uh, everybody is very interested in the salaciousness of it. I don't even want to go there, but there's a recent mm -hmm. uh, Netflix. I couldn't even watch it. Uh, no, I made 15 minutes. That was as far as I could get. Uh, you you did longer than I did. <laughs> I mean, God bless you. But I I, I want to. You know, it's not the way that I want to see her. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this book is the way that I want to see her because I have a greater appreciation uh, for her than I did. Uh, before this, and I was a huge fan at that time. So I want to thank you for that. Um, I'm going to give you the final word in just a moment. Uh, so it could be about anything that we spoke about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave with everyone today. Uh, I end every show by telling everyone to pick up the phone and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while. 
Tell them about today's show. Tell them about this book. Call your favorite bookseller and ask if this book is on their shelves. If it's not, tell them to get it on their shelves and order two copies. Order one copy for yourself and then reach out to the ninth name on your Facebook friends list and send them a copy and write a little inscription in it telling them that they make a difference in your life. Uh, it's important that we do this while we have the time to do so. So many people are celebrating people after they've passed on Facebook. And I always go, well, wouldn't that have been nice if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago? So we should really take the time to do so. Uh, so please do that. And I also have a dear friend. He says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you've got a skipper by your side. And if you got two Richards, you're doing very well for yourself. So Richard, I'm going to turn it over to you. And you've got the final word today. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Richard. And I'll just say, um, I'll add on to what Richard said by saying, um, I'm very grateful that I get to write acknowledgments in my book. Um, because I think it's very important to let the people in your life know how much they have contributed to your life. So any opportunity you get to do that, it's a blessing, it's a mitzvah, it's a great thing, do it. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.